That was much shorter than expected, David. Just so you know, I usually, so that I don't disrupt things, go around through the back in this maze that is the church and its building, and, and so I come out, but I didn't hear you praying still by the time I got to the back, so apologize for that. Our passages today are Proverbs seventeen seventeen and Proverbs 18, verse 24, so I want to encourage you to turn there. They should be a page or so apart, so ideally we can read them rapidly together. Proverbs seventeen seventeen. if you would stand as we read God's word. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. And then Proverbs eighteen twenty four. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. This is the Lord's word. We're going to use these and other Proverbs today to construct a biblical understanding of friendship. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you and and certainly submit ourselves to your word, I pray that you would help us to understand, help us to listen and, and pay attention today and and to be changed by what we read in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, a day like this in which we are already a little bit out of normal pattern, and and it's been a while, and it's slightly warm, and it's spring, all of those would lead together to make you want to sleep during this sermon. (laughs) So I want to encourage you to stay awake. If you're yawning, yawn now, get it out of the way. But we are going to be looking at friendship, and I believe this is a topic that affects all of us. In Proverbs 17 and 18, Solomon is distinguishing between three classes of people, companions and friends and family. And that's not meant to be an exhaustive distinction. Nor should we read too much into it, but it's helpful to think of friends as distinguished from companions. Many of you have hundreds of friends on your Facebook accounts, but perhaps they might be better described as companions, particularly as we learn about what constitutes a friend today. So over the course of your life, you are undoubtedly going to meet many people who will become acquaintances. There were multitudes that followed Jesus during the time of his ministry. He ministered to them. Some like the man born blind in John 9 or the Samaritan woman in John 4 are even specifically mentioned in the Gospels. But I think it's fair to say that Jesus was not intimately involved with each one of them as personally as he was with the 12 disciples or with Mary and and Martha and Lazarus. Now, among your many acquaintances, there will likely be some with whom you have greater interaction and personal knowledge, maybe many who share some of your same life path and goals, and they would fit into what the Bible calls companions. Early in his ministry, Jesus interacted with, for example, Nicodemus, whom we later learned became one of those who followed Christ, seems to have had a greater role than, than, let's say, the woman at the well in John 4. There were 70 disciples sent out by Jesus to evangelize the cities and towns of Israel. 
None of these appear to be in Jesus' closest circle of friends. And similarly, time and distance and other factors limit the number of people that we would consider close friends versus companions. But the Lord does expect that we will have close friends. After all, in the upper room on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus spoke of being a friend to the disciples. And in turn, he said, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he should lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends, if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because a servant doesn't know what his master's business is. I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father I have made known to you, this is my command to, to now love each other. Now many people argue that they're too busy for friends. That they have their family and that's all that they have time for. Others have had bad experiences and have grown wary of, of entrusting themselves to others in any meaningful way. But I would argue that such isolation is not healthy. And in fact, Solomon warns in Proverbs 18.1 that whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. In other words, part of the benefit of friends is that we are forced to confront our own self-centeredness. When we isolate ourselves, we tend to seek only our own interests, and those almost always lead to poor judgment and and decision-making. So, What constitutes a good friend? That's what we want to answer this morning, afternoon. What is a good friend? Well, we begin with our two verses, and then we expand from there. Proverbs 17, 17 says that a good friend loves at all times. And you might ask, all times? Every time. That's what Solomon is saying in every instance. And by also mentioning adversity, Solomon wants us to recognize that a friend loves us Even when things are difficult, whether those difficult circumstances are the ones that we're all facing together or difficult challenges in the relationship itself. And we'll call that characteristic of of friendship faithfulness. What makes a faithful friend? Well, think about what causes us to love a spouse or a family member for the long term. If you simply say, because I have to, or because they're family, that's a cop-out answer. What typically makes us love a family member for the long term is at least two things. And the first one is the belief that family bonds should not be broken and that they should therefore require a greater commitment from us. And number two is a long-term view of what we want to accomplish in our family relationships. We want to have a close family. We want to see our family member become more like Christ and so on. But in order to achieve those long-term goals, we know we have to make it through short-term conflicts and messes. And so the same faithfulness in family is what drives a true friendship. A second characteristic of a true friend is honesty. Proverbs 17 or 27.6 says, Faithful are the, word, the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So wounds from a friend, that sounds like a paradox, and, and for you children, a paradox is two opposite things being true at the same time, such as a friend who wounds us. 
And yet there are good wounds and there are bad wounds. Good wounds are the constructively critical comments, the the well-meant and intentioned rebukes that we receive from a friend which hurt a bit, typically because they injure our ego and our pride. A friend wounds us in love because in dealing with what is a character flaw or a sin issue, they know that we will become a better person who pleases and glorifies God. Now, as we're going through some of these characteristics, I want you to be asking first, am I a friend? And second, is this the kind of friend that I am? Am I a faithful friend who loves through all times, even when I'm in conflict with my friend? Am I an honest friend, one who will wound even out of love for their better good? And you'll remember how I said that faithfulness in relationship is at least partially driven and supported by this long-term desire for another person's good. And that not only keeps us in relationship, but it's what gives us the courage in that area of honesty to be able to say hard things when necessary. Listen to Proverbs 28, 23. Whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor rather than he who flatters with the tongue. As a friend, you are faithful when you lovingly give constructive criticism to another. Solomon says afterward, you will actually find more favor than if you simply flattered with your tongue. So how many of you find yourselves always saying to a friend what you think they want to hear? And I especially want you young men and women to hear this question. Do you find yourself simply saying to your friend what you think they want to hear? That will not build your friendship. It will only keep a superficial truce between the two of you until something really difficult happens. And then because you've not really learned how to work through difficult times together in a truly challenging moment those phony flattering words will not suffice and even worse proverbs 29 5 says a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet in other words all those phony words that you've been speaking to your friend have only been feeding his or her pride and creating a trap for him or her to stumble over So true friendship thrives on honesty, not just when it comes to constructive criticism, but simply when it comes to having a relationship built upon truth. Proverbs 26, 18 says, Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I was only joking. You ever say those words? I was only joking. I find myself saying a lot, I was only teasing. So, (laughs) the sermon's for me too. A third characteristic of friendship is trustworthiness. And that characteristic finds itself well with faithfulness and honesty. A friend can be trusted with confidential information. There's no doubt that he or she will protect you and your reputation. Proverbs 16.28 says that gossip separates the best of friends. And Proverbs 17.9 from last month said that he who covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter and gossips will separate friends. So putting those three together, a real friend, if you want to be a friend, 
You do not cover sin. Instead, you rebuke in love, but you also protect the reputation of your friend. You are quick to forgive. You're willing to work through difficult times, even when that difficulty is conflict in your relationship, because you ultimately desire both you and your friend to be more like Christ and to bring glory to God. And the more we hear those types of descriptions and those characteristics, the more we realize that being a true friend takes a lot of hard work. Which is why we more often would prefer to have a lot of companions. As one of our passages, Proverbs 18.24, describes. We're very comfortable, as I said earlier, with hundreds of companions on Facebook. But Solomon says, actually in Proverbs 18, this can lead to ruin. Why? Because as opposed to companions who will typically flatter you and keep you firmly prideful and self-centered, true friends are faithful, honest, and trustworthy. They're the type of people that will actually help you avoid ruin, which is usually because the ruin is brought by your own sin. They won't participate in the big facade that we all create about ourselves, this artificiality and superficiality that says, I have everything together, look at me. You see, the problem is that we don't want to spend a lot of time nurturing friendships. We spend a lot of time instead trying to fit in. That means we spend a lot of time thinking about our hair, thinking about our looks, thinking about our clothes, and all kinds of other external features. None of us wants to be stared at if it means that people are looking at us and don't like what they see. But we also don't want people not to ever look at us. We don't want to be just normal and and invisible. We want to stand out from the crowd and be seen, but in a way that impresses other people. We want companions who admire us, not friends who challenge us. We look around and we see what it takes in American culture to be noticed. We see the celebrities and sport figures and the business leaders and the actors and the actresses, and we see what they have to do to be popular and how they portray a particular image that has everything together and that is going for them. And if you look around, you will see the same problem is being repeated in those around you. It is a desire for acceptance, the fear of rejection, painful self-awareness and consciousness, peer pressure, and conformity. And always the questions that are looming, what will they think of me? How can I be accepted? How can I be loved? And unfortunately, this problem isn't just with young men and young women, for sure. Mothers and wives are always comparing themselves to other mothers and wives. Men are always trying to gain prestige and significance. Older men and older women start considering cosmetic surgery. We try to cover things up by not calling it peer pressure anymore, but rather wanting to look healthy, (laughs) which really means I will die if you think I'm unattractive. And as I said, the world does not help in this area because modern advertising feeds this whole monster of a problem. It always is driving us to ask, what will others think of you? What will they think of me? And that way we will try their product if we believe that it will actually make us look more attractive or more popular or more cutting edge. And so given what we've talked about with regard to true friendship and acknowledging this problem that we face, I want you to remember that so much of life comes down to three questions. 
They're on, if you, some of you have outline pages, otherwise I'll just list them for you here. Who is God? Who am I? And who are these other people? You probably don't often ask those questions out loud, but I want to suggest that you are likely asking these questions nearly every day of your life. The difficulty is that your normal answers are probably not healthy ones. The answer to who is God is too often, well, he's someone who should give me what I want. The answer to who am I is too often, I deserve or I need, you know, who am I is usually defined by our need of the moment or what we deserve. And so you can fill in the blank of looks or athletic ability or relationships. And the answer to who are these other people is too often these are the people whose opinions matter the most to me. And of course, there are other answers to these questions that are wrong answers at times, such as God is someone who doesn't care about me, or I am nothing, or I'm alone, or these people can't be trusted. But my point is that the answers to these questions that we in reality are usually asking every day are often the wrong answers because God is not angry or far away or unfair or Santa Claus and we are not worthless or alone or lepers or black sheep and others are not objects to manipulate or threats or jerks or idols. And we've talked a lot in the past months and years about who God is. As you read the Bible, you'll discover he is faithful, he's loving, he's actually interested in you. We'll talk more in the moment about others, but let's talk for just a moment about you. Who are you? What is, what is your identity? Well, sometimes the best answer to who we think we are is based upon how we present ourselves on social media. Are we always replacing our profile picture with the new selfie that we've taken that makes us look more attractive? Is it usually coming in and you know, this kind of look, and, and, and if that's the case, then well, we're thinking about our identity in terms of what other people think about us is very revealing. God wants you to have a different self-identity. And the Bible spends a lot of time trying to convince you that you're small and God is big. And yet at the same time that you are a royal heir, and a child of God, of, of the king, of all kings. You're an ambassador who lives to make Jesus known and glorified. You are a servant, a creature of the creator who, like Moses, must take her sandals off when approaching a holy God. You are loved more than the sparrows, more than the lilies of the field, and you have works to do that God has prepared for you before the foundation of the world, but ultimately you are a worshiper. And you'll either worship God and all those things that I've just described which make up your identity, a new name, a new mission, a new place, a new work, or you will worship yourself and other people and you will make them big in your life, and you'll make their values, those changing values of the moment, define your identity and what you have to do to make them accept you. But I'll tell you something else about our friendships. I think one of the biggest challenges that we face 
in relationships is a desire for reciprocity. And that may be a big word for some of you children, but reciprocity means that if I like you, you have to like me back. If I do something for you, you have to do something for me, too. It also means if you do something bad to me, then I will no longer like you. And the fact is, however, that we typically want more than actually than reciprocity. If we really looked at our relationships, we, at, we want them to be a little imbalanced in the sense that we want to be liked, loved, and admired more than we want to have to like, love, and admire other people. We want others to invest in this relationship with us more than we have to invest in them because there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. Sometimes it gives us more power in the relationship. Sometimes we're lazy. Sometimes we want less of a chance to get hurt. But one of the things you'll notice about Jesus is that his life was one of rejection and abandonment. If he had lived his life by the formulas that we often live our lives, he would have constantly felt rejected and abandoned. He would have avoided relationships or he would have just sought to impress and please. He would have isolated himself or just a few people, maybe would have retaliated when offended or sought to present himself in a way that others accepted and loved and admired. But his desire was to love the Father and to do the Father's will more than it was to receive the affection and approval of other people. I, I really want you to stop for just a moment and ask yourself today, which, um, on which end of the spectrum am I in this desire? Is my desire more to seek the will and the love of the Father and His praise in my life or is it to seek the will of the American ethos, whatever it is, my friends' opinions, and I want them to accept me more? Which one's most important to you? Because it was this love for the Father and to do the Father's will that was more than the desire to receive the affection and approval of other people that ironically allowed Jesus to love them more than he was loved. Think about what that means for us in our relationships. If we are going to reflect Christ, then most likely our relationships are always going to be a little imbalanced, but not in the way I was describing earlier, where we want them to love us more than we love them, or we invest in our relationship. The imbalance becomes in a Christ-like relationship that we love and serve, we outdo one another in good works. We love and serve others more than expecting it back. The principle of reciprocity is broken on behalf of being like Christ. Is that your desire? The desire to bless, to know, to build up, to ask for forgiveness from, to reconcile with others? Would you describe your relationships as imbalanced in the sense of you wanting to love and to serve more and invest in this relationship for the good of this other person than to what you expect back in return? And can you imagine what our church would look like if we were all in relationships with one another like that? 
it's a lot easier just to have a bunch of flattering companions. And what God asks of you is unnatural, even impossible in your flesh. But you'll have to keep going back to the Lord in prayer. You'll have to come, keep going back and, and seeking the power of the Spirit in your life. Paul would describe himself in 1 Corinthians 2. 2 is living only for Christ. Living only for Him and Him crucified. And we are called to have that same perspective. The Apostle John in his first epistle writes, this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us. Right? There's that, there's that again, that imbalance. And he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And you get implied in that the same way. Love one another the same way. There's only one way that you could possibly want to love others more than they love you, that you would break this principle of reciprocity, and that is to realize that you have been loved more than you could ever love in return. Your relationship with God is imbalanced, but in the good way, that God loved you more. So who are you? What is the answer to that question? Who are you? You are someone who was an enemy but was shown love. Now you get the opportunity to do that with others. Who are you? You are the beloved of God. He loved you more than you loved him, and now you get to serve and love others more. Who are you? You are a follower of Christ who was rejected over and over again by others and yet continued to serve and minister. And there is that one more question of three, and that is, who are others? One of the difficult things about the gospel is that Jesus broadens the circle of those who should be important to us. In the parables like that of Good Samaritan, Jesus tells us that we should love our neighbor as ourselves, and he tells us to love and pray for enemies. And he always is, as one author says, happy to blow up our normal way of seeing the world. It's very comfortable for us to have hundreds of acquaintances and companions, a few close friends, and then family members. But interestingly, the Bible expands the concept of family to be more than just our blood relatives. Imagine for just a moment what would happen if in your mind everyone was family. Usually, while you're at home with your family, you don't spend too much time thinking about their opinions of you. You're not worried about your hair or your clothes or constantly trying to impress. Family may drive you crazy sometimes, but you deal with it because they're family, as I said earlier. And this sense of family might even extend to your closest friends. But in the wisdom of God, he makes others, in fact, all others, family. If another person is a human being, then he's met the basic qualification of being a neighbor, and we are called to love that person like family. And the challenge goes back again to loving others more than we need to be loved in return, especially when it comes to our neighbor. As Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Do not look only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And you might think that, well, Jesus in Philippians to through the Apostle Paul is saying that others are more important than we are. But ask the question again, who am I? 
You are a royal heir. That means that Philippians is not making comparisons of worth. It's not much higher than a prince or a princess, right? Kings and queens. Royal priests. Rather, what Philippians 2 is saying is that as a follower of Christ, as one who has been given everything, the the answer being yes to every promise of God through Jesus Christ, that you exist in this imbalanced scale of love in which God has blessed you with everything. And so now you can live in humility and consider other people as worthy of preferential treatment. Right? You can treat them as family. The world treats love like a consumer transaction. Love is a satisfaction of my perceived need. And when I think of the many things that motivate me, I have to confess that most of the time I am motivated by the present needs or desires of my flesh. Every day as I'm working, I start thinking about getting thirsty and I go into the kitchen and I pour myself some iced tea and then I sit back down and I enjoy that and my need is it's generated by self, it's fulfilled by self, and it's met for the time until it comes up again. And our love for God is often that way. We love God because he met this need or that need. I remember all the times that I had a need and and I felt closer to God in that moment because in that moment of of self-awareness, of of felt need, I, I went directly to the Lord in prayer. I had overspent. God brought me money. I remember when my family had that crisis and God provided health. Well, what happens when the need is met? For many, their love diminishes until the next crisis. God is out of mind, out of sight for a while, and then the need starts to rise again, and then we turn back to the Lord. Just like me going back to the kitchen. Being a friend is hard because what God asks us to do is not based upon our needs. Being a friend is hard because it's not like I invest greater effort into my friendship because I'm feeling lonely at the moment. Being a friend endures challenging times, including my own laziness, including my own sinfulness. Ultimately, because it's not self-driven, but it's others-driven. Think about that for a second. Your friendships are not ultimately self-driven. That would change the paradigm of your friendships, turn it upside down for most of us. Your friendships should be others-driven, which means that you are a friend because you are edifying this other person for their greatest need, which is sanctification. Now, I hope you will desire to be a friend and to have true friends. And I'm not suggesting that you go out and say, that's right, these are all companions. I have 437 companions. None of these are really close friends on Facebook. But what I am asking you to reconsider is what it means to be a friend and how you've been considering friendship and what you've been seeking. 
And perhaps you're still thinking, wow, the more that you're talking about this, the more that you're describing this selflessness, this driven for their sanctification, not being lazy, not not wavering in the moment of my own perceived needs. I, I just do not have the time and effort. I am raising seven children. I have a, a wife. And, and I guess we don't have as many large families. So Ted Jones, I am not singling out you today with regard to friendship. Just saying, perhaps in your minds, you're saying, I don't have the time and effort. I have enough to worry about when it comes to myself. I don't want to harm other people. I want the best for people. I just don't have time. I've got a stressful job. I've got a difficult and busy life. And the moment I think about what you're suggesting, I feel overwhelmed because I'm uncomfortable to begin with, with all of that. Well, think again about John 13 that I quoted near the beginning of our time together. I said, in the upper room, Jesus spoke to the disciples. And remember what, what I read. As you remember what he said, did he say this? I'm about to leave you, and you're going to have some busy lives as you start sharing the gospel and spreading the kingdom. And I know that you have wives and children as well. And I know you've got a full-time job. If you have the chance, which I know you probably won't, be sure to try to serve one another and be a friend every once in a while. He never says that, does he? What does he say? He makes a general and overarching command in which he says, love others as I have loved you. What was Jesus' life like? It was consumed in the mission of serving others. If there is so much going on in our lives that we don't have the time to have friends and be friends, what does that say about our priorities? And let me tell you one other reason why I think it's difficult to be a good friend before we end. And it goes to the heart of our relationship with God. If you think about the Last Supper, Jesus starting to wash the disciples' feet and Peter at first refusing. It's difficult to think that, like Peter, that we need to, to be served and loved by God. I'm, there's a reason why I'm saying this. I'm going somewhere. All of our lives, like good Americans, we have been taught to be self-sufficient or at least self-serving. We've loved ourselves most. We've exalted ourselves over God. We've chosen the easiest and quickest way to maximize our own gratification at the least cost. And those habits do not go away easily when God saves us. And in our flesh, I would argue we really don't want to be loved by God the way that he is offering to love us. We don't want him to have to sacrifice himself and serve us every moment because we want to save ourselves with God's help. We want his help when we call upon him. We don't want someone that's walking alongside of us at every moment because that makes us recognize that we have to have him, that we need him. And plus, we don't like the fact that God is with us every moment. We want to indulge ourselves instead a lot. We want to be holy 
in the sacred moments of life. We want to be holy on Sunday afternoons. And sometimes on a Tuesday night. And occasionally on Thursdays around 1 o'clock. Those are the good moments because those are our sacred spaces. That's when God needs to be God who sits on the throne and he's the one that will listen to my prayers and come near me for just a moment. And someday we'll be in his presence for eternity and we're looking forward to that, we think. But we don't want God walking alongside of us every moment right now. We don't want to have to acknowledge weakness and the need for a service and sin. That's why Paul asks an important question in the fifth chapter of Galatians when he says, Are you so foolish that having begun by the Spirit that you're now perfected by the flesh? He says, If we live by the Spirit, then let us also walk by the Spirit. And so our attitudes, friends, have to change. When God transforms our hearts and we begin to walk in the Spirit by faith, what begins as a Christian walk, as a, as a satisfaction, uh, what begins, I would say, in the Christian walk is this, this satisfaction of, of feeling ourselves overcoming challenges and obstacles as God works through us, as he makes us instruments of change and redemption. And what began as a pride sometimes in a newfound knowledge and discernment becomes actually the joy of seeing God in our humility, in our recognition of a lack of knowledge, see him glorified for his strength and wisdom. And what begins as an attitude of taking on the challenge of the Christian life and getting victory in this or that area through exertion and devotion and spiritual discipline and really mastering ourselves becomes, well, I need God to walk alongside of me every day. I need the Holy Spirit because I am weak. I'm sinful, I'm prideful, and all of the other things. And I think that too becomes a foundation for being a true friend. Because it's this really abiding sense of living in the presence of God. Living before the face of God. Wanting everything in our life to be saturated by the sense that I do not have, I know I don't have the will, I don't have the strength, I don't have the wisdom to do the things that God wants me to do for his kingdom. So I'm going to constantly be coming back to him for my marching orders. I'm going to continually be coming back to him for his strength in me. I need to be a friend. And I need to be a good friend, and I don't know what that means, but I walk along, the Lord walks alongside of me. The Holy Spirit works in me. He will be an instrument in me. And so it keeps bringing us back to the throne because we know we walk in his presence, and we know we need him to serve us to be a good friend. And so, friends, I, I guess I close this afternoon with saying that the paradox of the gospel we talked about the paradox of the proverb earlier, of being a friend that wounds. But the paradox of the gospel of Christ is that you give up what seems like everything. I mean, what I've been describing is changing our motives. It's changing the way we view life, changing our priorities. But you give up everything in order to gain everything that counts. And it's only when you do that that you'll be able to be a friend 
that esteems others better than yourself and serves with the same passion and commitment that you serve yourself, that sees others as family and stops working to fit in and be accepted. And I believe that what happens is that we have better marriages, we have better church bodies, we have lifelong friendships, we have real worship. Let's make our heroes not the celebrities of the world. Let's make our hero Jesus who made himself lower than other people to serve us, to love us, who loves us in an imbalanced way so that we can go out and not demand that everything be reciprocated exactly like we put into our relationships. And I believe if we do that, boy, God is going to be glorified. Let's pray. Lord, you are a mighty and holy God who loves us far more than, than we love in return, loved us while we were enemies. You've given us the model of serving, of living as a friend. And you do command us to go out and love one another even as you have loved us, but you've given us the example and therefore you also have promised us the help we need. And I pray that rather than that cramping our style in the sense that we so often want to save and work for ourselves and exalt ourselves, I pray that that would be a great comfort to know that in order to live as you command us to live, that you will work in us and through us. Father, we want to glorify you. We want we want our worship to be directed to you and not to others. We want you to be our hero. So I pray that you would change your hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.